Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Ideas Matter by William Collins The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. It's ten o'clock. And the editors of William Collins, publishers of inspirational writing for over 200 years, have gathered for the weekly podcast meeting. And with Tom away, there is no one to stop one of Miles's anecdotes. In 1979, um, a chap called David Attenborough published a book called Life on Earth. They are discussing the books that changed them. That was the book that proved to you that it is the most exciting subject there is. Arabella. I've had my nose in a book since I was three. Takes us away from zoology. The books that really changed my childhood were the Narnia books, Asterix, which gave me a lifelong love of France, and of course Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And Carlos says this. So obviously, looking after the religious list, I've got to mention the Bible. But outside of that, do you know when a book kind of feels like it chooses you? This book definitely felt like it kind of chose me. And, um, and the book is called Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Victor Frankl, which is kind of a, a self-help classic. And it really inspired me to really search for, for my meaning and what I was kind of called to do in life. But enough small talk. It's time for the editors to discuss today's podcast guest. I'd like to introduce Dieter Helm. My name is Dieter Helm, and I am an economist by training. I'm a professor at Oxford University and a fellow of New College. have been uh, virtually all my working life. And the key idea that we're discussing is about how we can combine leaving the next generation with a better environment than we inherited and do it in a way which also enhances our economy more generally. It's green and it's prosperous and it's about the land. Um, now, many of you have seen Green and Prosperous Land. What you possibly don't know is that I spent a huge amount of time in North Uist in the Outer Hebrides with Dieter talking about this book, talking about the thoughts behind this book, and also mainly talking about fishing, which is one of the reasons we were up there. So I thought I'd start by asking him about North Uist and the kind of environment up there. So, dear listener, conserve your energy and take a seat as we hear Dieter Helm in conversation with his friend and editor, Miles Archibald. They begin with a fishing trip they took together a couple of years ago, where they discussed the seemingly natural landscape. So you've been going to North Uist in the Outer Hebrides for how many years? I think it's at least 20 now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and I kind of joined you in about 2003, just as an interesting, as a kind of microcosm, because actually that's the one thing that's really quite interesting. It's just in looking at a quite a simple ecological man-made environment, i.e. the Macha. When you get familiar with uh, a habitat, uh, an area as you and I are with North Uist, but I am with Exmoor too, where I spend half my life. 
you get to understand that there is no wild. You know, people just go for the first time and think, oh, it's wonderful landscape. It's so wild and open. It isn't. It's a man-made construction. Everything on our planet is now man-influenced. And in a country like Britain, everything that we have, our natural environments, are all man-shaped. Or woman shaped should be to be person shaped. Person we, shaped. We'll, 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 drop, we'll drop person shaped. Person shaped in, okay. in the edit. So when you look at a place like North Uist, the maher, which are the productive bits of the land, where you've got the calcium deposits on what's otherwise a very peaty acid soil, these have been cultivated for generations. And if you go back before the clearances in the highlands, the populations were much much higher. And that environment would not exist were it not for agricultural practice for centuries. So that's where we are. And what happened in the 20th century, like all the rest of agriculture, is the internal combustion engine turned up, tractors turned up, chemicals turned up, ploughs turned up in a much more industrial sense. And so the land was transformed. And what had gradually built up in a very benign environmental way suddenly become extremely exposed. And when you look at a place like North Uist, nothing in its agriculture is economic, apart from perhaps the shellfish. But on land, nothing. The sheep are all a cost to you and me. There's no economic value in them at all. Crofting does not deliver any positive net present value any, in an economist sense. So we, it's a subsidised environment. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just to say, if you're going to subsidise this place, why don't we do it to the public interest? And you can see how it's beginning to shift in a place like North Uist. They realise their future is tourism. Their future is marketing their natural environment, getting people to enjoy rare bumblebees, getting people to see the seabirds. Okay? And to do that, you have to cherish, nurture and conserve your natural environment. And we're at that junction point now where that new economic interest in the environment has to translate into action on the ground. And that's about money, that dirty economic thing of money, Back and how money. it's spent. You know, you see it in, in, in Iceland. If you go to Iceland, you'll see huge industry now in whale watching. You'll find that off the Hebrides generally. This is all new. This is where the future economic returns to these places are going to be because there isn't any serious agricultural output. And as an aside, if you wander around North Uist, you'll see plastic bags full of peat all over the place. How does that fit with net zero? Burning peat all over the place, cutting into peat box. You can't just leave these places and think that they'll look after themselves. Yeah. We have to manage them better. And the scope to do that up there is enormous. And Exmoor's like that too. Overgrazed for 200 years. You can see the consequences. Well, the sheep are uneconomic. We don't have to pay for this anymore. Couldn't we pay for something better? And so it, it's, in a way, the point here, I mean, particularly with kind of agriculture which is quite heavily subsidised in certain areas and upland sheep farming as in Exmoor or kind of uh, sheep farming on the Outer Hebrides. Very similar because they are quite heavily subsidised. And I think your argument is it's not that you want to remove all the sheep because actually some of them have a ecological purpose, but it's that you don't have hardly... You have hardly any sheep 
but the farming community still gets the same subsidy, but for, in a way, farming corn buntings. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the plight of farmers, and let's leave out the really big guys, but, but the bulk of the farming population in this country are over 60. Okay, It's a hard life. It's exposed to all the vagaries of commodity markets. And because of the way CAP works, it's carried out in land which is massively overpriced for its economic value. Okay, So what's the future for them? What are they going to do going forward? Now, some people say, oh, well, tough luck. They can go the way of the miners. We'll just rewild it. You know, we'd be better off without them. Yeah. Okay. And I think this is wrong for two reasons. It's wrong because the natural environment is not necessarily better because it's rewilded. Rewilding is just an environmental management technique. Sometimes it's a good idea. But this idea we just revert to some wild. There is no wild to go back to. It's nonsense. Okay? And indeed, many of our habitats, like the Maher, are the consequences of particular kinds of land management, farming practice, etc. So what we want to do, it, particularly in the uplands and the more remote areas like the Outer Hebrides, is think quite hard about how we use that land better and how we get farmers to be the managers of that land in the public interest. And, you know, the remarkable thing about the farming population, they know this. They can see this. And, you know, net zero, looking after carbon, husbanding the peat when we get up into the north, okay, looking after maher, grazing techniques which don't overdo it, but don't underdo it either. You know, these things matter. I mean, ask yourself the following question. When we've rewilded the whole damn world, will there be any hay meadows left? Will there be any water meadows (laughs) left? They'll be covered in trees. So let's just go back and look at what kind of you had laid out in the green and prosperous land. And then maybe let's go and have a look at what happened in the last 12 months or in the last nine months since the hardback was published. Because quite a lot of has happened. But the idea behind green and prosperous land was to lay out the 25-year plan, wasn't it? It is uh, trying to lay out the 25-year plan, but it has a much bigger context. And that's an idea which goes back right uh, uh, to the back in 2011 or whatever, when the government came up with its idea that it was going to try to leave the next generation's environment in at least as good a state or better than uh, uh, they found it. And one of the things that people haven't noticed is that as part of that, the idea was that the environment would no longer be some kind of luxury tag on, but it would be at the core of economic policy. And that's what's really developed alongside the practical ideas in green and prosperous land. The ideas about how all of this is actually very economically sensible to do. You know, it enhances sustainable economic growth. It actually makes us better off. And put it the other way around not to do this stuff, not to do the things I lay out in Green and Prosperous Land, is actually inefficient and bad and makes our growth rate lower than it otherwise would have been. So let's kind of look at it from kind of 12 months ago. What was the kind of primary kind of force? Because you talk about polluters paying, you talk about rebalancing the kind of common agricultural policy so that it pays for conservation what do you think is the most important? If you have one lever that you could pull, what do you think that would be? Well, what really took this from 
a set of good ideas and you know we'd ploughed away in the natural capital committee working up some of these things too to having substance having bite was actually brexit because if you're going to do brexit and whatever one's views about brexit are we're going to come out of the common agricultural policy and we're going to also come out of all those directives which cover our natural environment, water, air quality and so on. So there had to be something put in place. And that's the kind of catalyst for doing this stuff. What comes on top of that is a just clear recognition that the politics have all changed. Now we have a world in which political parties are queuing up to outgreen each other. It's almost dangerous how uh, enthusiastic they've become. But you've got a political tide, uh, a legal necessity with Brexit and a fantastic opportunity because, you know, agriculture's 70 percent of our land. We do it incredibly badly. It's appallingly inefficient. So all of these things come together and you just get that moment when the stars align. And that's the point to pounce. And green and prosperous land tells you why we should pounce, what the benefits of it are, but also how to do it. It's practical. And so the and the, the pounce bit, which has actually kind of now been kind of through Parliament, which is the Environment Bill, is the is the moment at which all the kind of balancing of the EEC legislation for ensuring protection of the environment is taken away from the EEC and replaced by the Environment Bill. So that bill is quite important, isn't it, in terms of what the political parties have to do after the general election? Well, the Environment Bill is broadly a good thing. There are lots of caveats around it. It does set up the framework that we have to put in place after Brexit, if Brexit happens. But almost all of it is the right thing to do even if there's no Brexit. It's just that Brexit gives it an urgency. And as these things happen, we turned out to have a Secretary of State in charge of DEFRA, not at the usual bottom of the political pile, but right at the top. And whatever one's political persuasions, uh, Michael Gove took this forward and it gave it momentum. And it is basically unstoppable. The risk is that it's just unstoppable as a nice aspiration, what we would like to do. What has to be embedded now is it has to be on a legal basis. So there is no going back, just like the Climate Change Act. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That is the key thing about the 25 years. This is legally enforceable. So that once it's been in, started, it's set in train, there will be a 25-year program to hopefully return the British countryside to some semblance of where it was in the 70s or the 60s or 50s. How you know That's the important thing, isn't it? It's the legislation. It, it is the important bit, and that's why the Environment Bill has to become law. And I genuinely think it's going to be. I think it's unstoppable. But the devil's in the detail. You know, in my book, I'm really quite careful to show how you implement these ideas so that you make sure they produce the results they're intended to and don't just get lost in the waffle. You know, it's very easy to say, you know, we'd like the environment to be better. Wouldn't we all? You know, it's cakeism. We'd like it like yeah. to have everything laid out for us. Of course, we'll aspire to it. Of course, politicians will say that's what they're going to do. But, you know, it really does matter what you do. You know, for example, if you take uh, the carbon side of things. So, um, you know, so people say, well, let's plant lots of trees. Yeah, but which trees? Where? What are the co-benefits if you put the right trees in the right place? And what are the co-costs? the real disasters you could get by, for example, planting spruce or eucalyptus trees all over the environment. So the detail really matters. And so um, it's, it's really that the Act puts this stuff or will put this stuff on a legal basis. But that's the beginning of the game. Then we've got to make it work. And that's why the Green and, and Prosperous Land is more than simply, look, this is the direction we should go. It's about how we should do it and what the benefits of what we should do would be. And that's the other thing that I think has been really interesting with the kind of book and the conversations that have been built around the book is that the association between kind of conservation and kind of global warming and carbon balance has all become, slowly you can see it coalescing. So one of the things that I know you talk about is that kind of natural sequestration, difficult word to say, even more difficult thing to do. And that's what you mean about the detail. So if we plant a whole lot of Sitka spruce and then send it to be burned, that's not carbon neutral, is it? So maybe just kind of quickly go through that idea about what, how you use trees, in effect, as a natural sequestration. Well, the big thing that's happened since um, uh, the hardback came out of the book is putting net zero 250 into law. And that is a big step forward. It's not quite what people think it is, because, of course, reducing your carbon emissions from production in the UK doesn't necessarily reduce global warming. It's quite wrong to say and I'm going to make this point very clearly in the paperback, it's quite wrong to say that if we get to net zero, we won't be causing any more climate change. You know, if you close down British Steel, for example, your emissions will go down, tick in the box, right? But you'll import the steel from China or somewhere else, and the emissions will be even higher, plus the shipping than it otherwise would have been. So if you really mean net zero, this is a big game changer. Now, what I, what I try to do in the paperback going forward is to spell out how to think about that problem. So most of the time we thought about, you know, stopping the emissions from the steel mills and dealing with the tailgate from the car. 
And sometimes we've blundered around with palm oil, biofuels, biomass, diesel. I mean, there's a litany of mistakes, yeah. but, the, but, but part of it's about that. But, of course, carbon's always been emitted, and it always will be emitted. The question is, can the environment suck it up as quickly as we admit it? That's what the, the, the environment does. That's what photosynthesis is about, right? So it's a natural process. We've done innumerate harm globally to the ability of the environment to suck up carbon. You know, one or two hectares a minute of the Amazon go. But we've done a lot of damage here too. You know, our intensive agriculture means that we're losing the carbon in the soil at a hell of a rate. You know, and there's four times as much carbon in the soil as there is in the atmosphere. So this really matters. So what we've got to do is to help the natural environment put this stuff back. And the really good news about this is if you do it properly, you can get the biodiversity back. You can get the leisure, the recreation, the water flows, the water quality. Loads of things can be improved at the same time. So what I have in mind is that those who cause pollution, and they will go on emitting carbon for a quite long time to come, will have to offset them. They'll have to compensate. It's a principle in green and prosperous land from the outset. If you damage something, you've got to compensate and make it right. So lots and lots of polluters are going to be out there. They are already today out there trying to find people who will do sequestration. One of them plans is to pump the stuff into, you know, disused gas wells offshore. And that's industrial CCS and that has some role. But, but everyone's woken up to the idea, hey, couldn't we use the land to do this? We've got this thing called trees. That yeah, kind these of, things called trees. trees right? These things called trees, natural now, sequestration, now yes. You, when you look at a tree, there are certain things that are, that are characteristic of it. I mean, the first thing is, yes, it does store carbon, right? But some trees store carbon better than others. It always takes a long time, and some trees take longer than others, It takes hundreds of years for a decent oak tree to mature. It takes 25 years for a really fast eucalyptus tree to do the job. And these trees have enormous difference in their impacts. Oak trees contain a huge number of species. Eucalyptus doesn't. So I have in mind, and what I set out in the paperback, is the idea that we should use the markets to do this but use the markets to do what the public good outcome is that we require. So you're a producer. You come along to a landowner and you say, hey, look, um, I need to sequestrate some carbon. Could you do that for me? To which the answer is, well, uh, yes, I could plant some trees. I could um, treat my soil better and get some carbon back into it. And I could do something to restore the peat box. Peat, by the way, is the really big ticket item here. Yeah. So question, well, how do I know you're going to do it? How do you prove it? And that's where, and this is what I've been really involved in the last few months in earnest, is you need to get on with natural capital baseline surveys. You have to know what you've got before you work out what's been added. And there's a plethora of data to do this. And then what you have to do is monetize. and I know this sounds crude economics, but it's really important because this is how the incentives work. You have to monetize the different value streams you get from, say, planting those trees in the uplands. Okay? So it's not just you get paid for the carbon, 
you've sequestrated. You get paid for the biodiversity enhancements you made, which may come through the new agricultural subsidy regime. You get money from the water company because you reduced the pollution. You get money for flood defence because you slowed the water flow. And if you really think about it, the health service should be paying you too to give people benefits for natural um, methods of improving mental health and physical well-being. And I envisage that being an auction platform. You go on eBay, you go on to a car boot sale and you buy and sell stuff. Why shouldn't you be able to trade all these things together and capture the revenue together? So that's how I see it working. And that's, I mean, that's oft discussed, the idea that you have a marketplace for the kind of bartering of your carbon units that allows you to offset. And there have been, I think the really interesting thing is what hasn't oft been discussed is that association between carbon sequestration and conservation. So this idea that actually if you conserve a peat bog, you have the ability to say that that's a unit of carbon sequestration that could be traded and would probably actually be certainly kind of more economically viable than grazing sheep on it or you know, maybe shooting grouse. I mean, all those other things that people are kind of thinking about with regards to the uplands. And I think that's the really interesting thing. It's the association between the carbon kind of marketplace and conservation. So if you try and wear the hat of a conservation organisation, a wildlife trust or whatever, you know, you had a period in which you got quite a lot of money from the landfill levy and that topped up your revenue. And there are other schemes that came forward to help you out. And, of course, you relied heavily on the way in which agricultural subsidies worked out to high-level stewardship schemes, all those kinds of things. You now know that the CAP is bust. And even if we stayed in the EU, the CAP is not going to be what it was before. So you know that the revenue side you got directly from the CAP looks a bit dodgy. You know the landfill levy is largely over, and you know anyway that landfill's nearly over. And you know that since the recession, right back in 2007, 2008, membership's been tougher. Yeah. You need the money. Yeah. Okay? But you know what you want to do. You want to do stuff which will have, by the way, the consequence of sequestrating carbon in quite a large scale. My guess is that this will turn out to be one of the major revenue streams, the 25-year plan and the net zero together, for environmental groups going forward. And it offers a really exciting opportunity to revolutionise the great work that all these environmental groups do. Instead of, you know, scrounging this bit here, trying to get a bit of cash there, trying to improve this little bit of habitat or that bit of habitat, this is on a massively bigger scale. This is a chance of really regreening our countryside and really putting our biodiversity back together. And this is the chance to have the money to do it. And that gives you the, the tr- I mean, the 25 years, it's not, I mean, you know, in 25, we look 25 years back. Um, things have, in certain ways, things have got better. Um, but there are certainly more red kites around than there were 25 years ago. There are certainly more buzzards. Um, uh, but it'd be interesting, how do you see in 25 years, how do you see the countryside looking if this plan works? Well, There's another dimension which I brought out more in the the paperback, which you need to add to this equation alongside net zero. Now, while all this 
conservation discussion, carbon discussion, 25-year plans going on, we have an agricultural revolution taking place. You know, if you think about, say, food production and protein, you know, a small insect factory in France produces more uh, protein in that factory from insects than one of the largest estates in Britain does on its entire land. If you look at indoor vertical farming using solar parks, it's incredibly uh, exciting and it doesn't have any pesticides because there are no pests. It recycles the water. If you look at what gene editing is doing, forget the GMOs for a moment, if you look what genetics is enabling us to do, if you look what's at the end of the drill bit as it goes over the field and the massive big data that's being created, you know, we have a really massive change in agriculture. And my view, you might think, is, is uh, irrationally optimistic, but I think it's really rationally grounded. I don't think we're going to need so much land for agriculture. I think we're going to use less land to produce much more food and actually better food and more environmentally uh, friendly food. And that means we free up the land, quite a lot of it. And this is an enormous opportunity. This is the end of dig for victory on every single piece of land we can get. Grub it all up and cover it in chemicals. This is a world in which a lot of the land can be used for better purposes. And that is why I'm wildly optimistic about the potential of what we can achieve. That is the green and prosperous land we can have in 2050. And as I said out in the book, almost all of it is known, doable, and some environmentalists have already thought about it. The question is whether we're going to turn it into results. And it's the same question we face with climate change. Do we really mean it? So what I've tried to do is to say, you ought to mean it because it's in your own interest. It's sustainable economic growth. And if you don't do it, it won't be sustainable and therefore it won't be sustained. That's why we should do climate change. That's why we should do the 25-year plan. And what's more, if you're worried about its practicality, here's how you do it. And here are the benefits that are going to flow to people. Because nature doesn't care at all. It's only us that cares. And people have to see benefits if they're going to support this, pay for it and vote for it. So I'm optimistic. And I think in 2050, we might look back and say, you know... In about 2018, 219, 220, this was the turning point. This was the net zero moment and this was the 25-year uh, environment plan moment. And that's what I've tried to carry through into the paperback from the hardback. And so the interesting thing sitting here is actually now there is the model of how you pay for it. and Now we have to decide whether we want to do it. And yep. that's, I think that's the key thing now, isn't it? It's, it's, it the, the economic argument is completely kind of in, irrefutable. But now what we need to do is collectively decide whether we actually want to do this. Because we've, we've talked about conservation for the last 25 years. You know the stats. I know the stats. It's not been going well. And that's in a, an environment which is very kind of, you know, supposed to be very pro-conservation. Well, we've done a terrible job if we're pro-conservation. So that perhaps might be the last takeaway from this is that that's what everybody's got to decide, whether you want this to happen. Because we can now work out how to pay for it. It's, it is decision moment. It's the, it, it, it has to be decided now. But, you know, the really good news is not only do we know how to pay for it, but we waste so much money now on things like the common agricultural policy. You know, we pay people to own land. 
It's extraordinary. You know, it's pretty hard to imagine, you know, a, a 101 economics undergraduate who couldn't work out how to spend the current money we spend on the environment better. We could stop the waste. That'd be great. Yeah. And when there was more money on top for the carbon, you put the two things together. We had the means as well as a, a clear view of the prize that's at the end of this, this journey we've got to make. And now all we have to do is have the guts to decide to do it. And that's what the Environment Bill's about. That's what 220's all about. And we'll know in a year or two whether or not we really mean it. But it's in our interest to mean it, as well as being good for the environment. And that's a good start. So everybody listening to the podcast, um, come back in a couple of years' time. We'll have worked out whether we're actually going to do it. And come back in 25 years' time, and maybe Dieter and I will talk about how it actually went. Thanks very much, Dieter. Thank you. That was Dieter Helm in conversation with Miles Archibald. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Tara Al-Azawi and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at WM Collins Books. You can buy Green and Prosperous Land, a blueprint for rescuing the British countryside, as a hardback or ebook, where Dieter dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. And we'll meet you back here next week when we will be discussing whether grime music is political with Dan Hancock's. You know, the thing that was upsetting and enraging for a lot of people um, who maybe didn't sympathise with the rioters but, but felt like they understood their rage was the fact that there was no one really articulating mm. where that anger had come from, you know. Because people were saying, like, oh, you know, that we need more police here or we need more police there. There should, in a democratic, like, liberal society, there should never be enough police to stop rioting. Yeah. You stop rioting by, the, by, you know, there not being a will to riot in the first place, not by, like, having a more authoritarian, like, <laughs> deterrent. To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Acast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.